0: Well, chapter 5, we kind of turn a bit of a corner, a bit of a different section in John's gospel. And we see here, especially beginning here, that the opposition to Jesus really ramps up. It intensifies. And we'll see this not just now, but in the next few weeks, because they've come to hear Jesus' word. They've come to hear that they're sinners and they need grace. And boy, what do sinners don't like to hear they don't like to hear that they can do nothing for themselves and something, someone must do uh, everything for them. We don't like that. They didn't like that. And so the attitude of the Jews will move from one of, of expectation. They expected the Messiah to come. They were kind of curious about Jesus. You know, there's a bit of a curiosity there, I think. But now it moves to outright opposition and hostility and even rejection. So... The name of Jesus being a scandal and an offense is nothing new. We see this right here in Scripture. And Jesus said it would be this way, right? And so if you're offended, if other people are offended to you, then you should know that uh, Jesus said a pupil's not greater than his teacher. And so that's going to happen to us. But I'm afraid many people who think they are believers today, who think they are living for the Lord in many churches today, think they're preaching The gospel are doing the very same thing as what we're going to see here in Scripture. They're sort of in the realm of the gospel, they're sort of around the gospel, but they're preaching and believing and relying on for their salvation something quite different than the gospel, as I think we're going to see here in this text. Because we see a great contrast between the grace of God and the joy that comes with that, or the joy that should come with that, and joyless works-based religion, which is why I've called my sermon the joy of grace and the joylessness of legalism. And I know many of you are acquainted with legalism, not because that's what we preach here, which i trying not to preach that here, but many of you have, been, uh, have encountered that, maybe even in your young lives, I know I did in church a good bit, and it's, it's, it's still very popular, either legalism or antinomianism, and we're going to preach about both of those in this, in this gospel I think the human heart and our fallen nature, we tend toward uh, lawlessness. We reject the, God, the, the law of God and say it has nothing to say about it for us today. Or we can do it. This can-do spirit that says we must work our way to heaven. And so these first five, five or nine verses, we see the grace, the rescuing grace of Jesus displayed. So we come to this story. The pool of Bethesda. And it's kind of a sad and and really pathetic scene isn't it i love john john's very detailed i like i like you know i used to be a journalist if you ever write a paper for me students you know i like detail i want you to show me and not tell me and so john uh, and this is really this story today is really a showing and, and not a, a telling right or a, you know, he's showing us the truth and not so much telling us the truth he's showing us by by illustration and i think that's very powerful So this is a sad and pathetic scene. He puts us on the scene and painting this picture for us here. Jesus is in Jerusalem to attend one of the ceremonial feasts. We're not sure which one that was. Probably one of the pilgrimage feasts. Probably the Feast of Booths or Passover or Pentecost. And he comes upon this pool called Bethesda, which had five roofed colonnades and a pool. And this is something that for many years there were liberal scholars who said, well, we don't. You know, they didn't build roof colonnades in those days. Well, lo and behold, in the last 50 years, archaeology has co- uncovered what they think is this very pool in the five colonnades. So, archaeology just, with every turn of the spade, it seems like it just proves the gospel, the truth, the truth of Scripture, doesn't it? Today, it's known as the Pool of St. Anne. But John tells us that lying beside this pool was a number of invalids. And it's very descriptive they were blind, they were lame, they were paralyzed. They're waiting to get into this pool so that when the waters were stirred up, that they might be healed. Now, some manuscripts and maybe even some translations say that these invalids are waiting for the, the moving of the water for the angel of the Lord to come and move the waters. They would get in and they'd be healed. Now, there's not really a lot of evidence or healing properties in this water. Might have made them feel better, might have made them feel like they're healed, made the power of suggestion, but really, it's probably just myth and maybe a little bit of superstition. Because we know there's not really power, healing power. In, in the waters right in the holy waters i mean we know that from i mean there are denominations that use that uh and i think there's healing in god i certainly certainly that we see that here but not in the waters themselves no real healing properties there and this man had been sick not just for a short time but for 38 years i know some of you deal with pain on a daily basis And imagine, and you may deal with this for 38 years, but imagine dealing with pain and suffering, affliction, physical affliction for 38 long years. J.C. Rowell put it, it said, 38 summers, 38 winters, 38 springs, 38 falls. That's a lot, that's a lot of time, isn't it, to hurt? Long time. A lot of you in here are not even nearly that old. I keep forgetting about that. I talked about 9-11 last week and I had to explain to some of you what that was. I think I've heard about that, read about history books. I thought that was just like yesterday, right? (laughs) 38 years. It's a long time to suffer, isn't it? Been in pain, been crippled. He'd seen others get into the waters and go home rejoicing. They felt like they'd been healed. They'd gotten something, at least they thought. But it had always been this way, 38 years. This man had not had any relief. Misery and pain had been his constant companions. And no doubt by now he felt hopeless And helpless as year after year this happened, decade after decade, nearly four decades, his hurt remained never lessened. He's probably just waiting to die. I think you can get to a place of hopelessness with physical pain, and I've I've seen this, and people have counseled, and praise God, I've always had good health, and pray that continues, but but it just becomes a, a sense of hopelessness, and I think he may have just been waiting to die, and I've known people, and you probably have too, known people like this. Because that would be the only thing that would relieve him from this awful, grinding pain. Now, J.C. Rowland, you know, I love him, but he reminds us that this pathetic picture of these gravely sick people is a product of the fall. It's rooted in sin, right? We can say, thanks, Adam. Thanks a lot, Adam. Thanks a lot, Eve. Of course, if we'd have been there, we'd have done the same thing, right? We would not have not, we would not, have not resisted the fruit, said when we read of cases of sickness like this we should remember how deeply we ought to hate sin sin was the original root and cause and fountain of every disease in the world god did not create man to be full of aches and pains and infirmities these things are fruits of the fall there would have been no sickness if there had been no sin and I agree, this should make us despise him because look at what it's done to this world. Everything is rooted in sin. That's how we like biblical counseling, right? Because even addiction is rooted in sin and pain and affliction of every kind. rooted in sin, right? All goes back to sin at the end of the day and a change of heart will usually, of course it won't always cure physical sickness, but sometimes it will, at least it'll help, right? No no sin, there being no sickness. And it's glorious to know there'll be no invalids, there'll be no... Incurable diseases when God makes the new heavens and the new earth. And I got to tell you, the older I get, the more I look forward to that. <laughs> you know, I think I was younger, man, God can just wait a little while to come. You know, I've got my whole life before me. I've got my college degree and I got this stuff and I want to really live a little. You know, the older I get, the more I think, you know, the more I have arthritis. I found out i got arthritis the past week, which the doctor said just get over yourself. It's because you're middle age, Jeff. <laughs> Thanks a lot. But the more I long for heaven, and so we we should, no matter what age or condition, long for heaven, because all these things will be eradicated, right? We won't, there'll be no scenes like this. It's a product of a fallen world. And it's a hopeless picture of our hopeless condition. I think that's the whole point. It's a hopeless picture of our hopeless condition, of course, apart from Christ, right? The, the, The hope we have in Him. One day, he'll put these things away, and he will change things now for us. I think that's one purpose of this, what is the third recorded miracle of Jesus. And the lesson we learn here is that it paints a dramatic picture of the woeful condition and the hopelessness of the human race apart from Christ. This is, I mean, how your neighbors who are outside of Christ should feel about their lives. It's just hopeless, and you've probably encountered some of that. I hear it all the time. And people in the neighborhood we talk about hope, and there's just no hope, is there? And we see it dramatized here. I mean, look at verse three, and in, in these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, paralyzed. And you go down to inner city, Louisville, right, go down downtown, going to the bridges, and, and what do you see? You see this, don't you? You see the blind? You see the lame? see the paralyzed? You see some who are pretending to be blind and lame and paralyzed. It's a picture of our fallen world, isn't it? I mean, this is the human race as it stands apart from the saving grace of Jesus Christ. And this is us. This is you. This is me until the grace of God breaks through, unless the grace of God breaks through, right? This is who we are. Romans 5, 6. I love what Paul, the way Paul puts it. He tells us that when we were still powerless, when were you powerless? Well, you're always powerless, right? I'm always powerless and weak, no matter how strong we may think we are. While we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. So we're powerless, we're ungodly apart from Him. The news isn't good, is it? That's why man-centered theology, it doesn't help anybody. It condemns people, Right? We start with God, we measure ourselves against God, and we see that we are blind, that we are invalids, that we're paralyzed, we're lame. I mean the Greek word rendered powerless literally means infirm or feeble or unable to achieve anything. Destitute of power, sluggish. And that should make us appreciate the salvation's come to us all the more when we ponder this, you think, well, Jeff, man, you're really starting off this, this is really negative. Well, I want you to rejoice that this is not who you are anymore if you're in Christ. And I think in our, you know, we hear this so much, I think it's easy for us to take our salvation for granted, what we're rescued from for granted. I mean, look at the the three words. He says they were blind. Jesus spoke back in, back in John 3 of our spiritual blindness, in his counter with Nicodemus, he said what? No one can see the kingdom of God, see the kingdom of God, unless he's born again. In other words, unless God is pleased to open your blind eyes and say, like he did Paul, put the, the salve of his grace on your eyes and say, see, you won't see. The people are passing our building today and just going about their merry way on the Lord's day, and think we're really foolish for being in here, and they scorn and laugh and say, This book, oh, six to 10,000 years old, they're in there studying that on this morning. Why do they do that? They're blind. The great hymn, Amazing Grace. We all love that hymn. We should love that hymn. John Newton said, Once I was blind, but now I see. Until God opens our eyes, we are blind to the things of God. We're spiritually blind, we're lame. We're lame. The, the proof of the blindness is their refusal to believe on Jesus. We're blind. We're lame. Remember the paralytic in Matthew nine, Mark. These are Mark uh, two and Luke chapter five, where they tore a hole in the roof. There's a little bit of humor in this, I think. They they tore open the roof. They're so desperate to get to Jesus, to get this paralytic to Jesus. They did what? They they opened the roof, tore a hole, poked a hole in the roof. And I wonder, boy, I wonder the homeowner must have been really upset about this. You know, yeah, you tore a hole in my roof. They were desperate to see Jesus. They they opened a hole in the roof and got this man to Jesus so this lame man so we could heal him, and he did. I mean, this is a picture of our spiritual lameness, isn't it? That's why Jesus says in chapter six, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. You came to Jesus because Jesus drew you. He drew you with his cords of love, as the hymn writer put it. So we're blind, we're lame. Paralyzed. We cannot do anything good. Cannot do anything good, and cannot is the, the key word. We have what the great theologian um, Jonathan Edwards called moral inability— inability to do anything spiritual to please God. Now we can do religious things. We're going to see that in a minute. We can do religious things. We can go to church. We can join a good old Southern Baptist church, and we can sing. We can sing, a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. We can even tell others about Jesus. And we can go to hell when we die. Because our hearts haven't been changed. We're paralyzed. We, we're trying to do things on our own. Again, we're going to see this a lot. We're going to see this ad nauseum through John, encountering the Jews, the Pharisees, the teachers there. We have a spiritual problem we have what i like to call a worship disability that's our problem you have a worship disability you worship everything but the thing you should be worshiping the true living god that was the jews problem here they had a worship disability you must be cured by god's grace of your worship disability we worship we're inveterate worshipers we love we'll worship something right god made us he hardwired us for worship As you heard me say before, that's how we're dazzled by things. I'm dazzled by NFL players, dazzled by men who are 340 pounds who can run 40 yards in like 4.8 seconds and hit the quarterback and dazzled, that quarterback can get up and dust himself off and walk back to the huddle. I'm dazzled by that. Dazzled by Shohei Otani who can hit the ball 450 feet and then throw the ball 98 miles an hour. But as to paraphrase C.S. Lewis, we're far too easily dazzled, aren't we? We're dazzled by those things, but we're dazzled by what happened at Calvary. We're dazzled by what God has done in this world. We have a worship disability. It's impossible to please God without the grace of God. Romans seven eighteen, Paul says, For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot. In other words, I lack the ability to carry it out. If you've carried it out, it's because you were enabled. God put strengthen your bones he poured grace into the the marrow of your bones and enabled you the dry bones he said live and you lived blind lame and paralyzed Harry Ironside the old pastor of the Moody Church back in the uh, middle part of the 20th century illustrated it this way He tells of a journalist aboard a ship uh, sailing from China to San Francisco they got in the harbor near San Francisco the ship hit a big rock he began to sink. This journalist, he was knocked out, knocked unconscious, knocked unconscious, both of his legs were broken. He winds up in the water, he comes to himself, and he can't move. He can't move, he's floating. But eventually what's going to happen? He's going to get waterlogged. what do waterlogged things do? They sink. He's paralyzed. He can do nothing until a boat, a rescue boat comes, and plucks him out of the water. And Ironside said, and he's right, this is a beautiful illustration of our spiritual condition, isn't it? And what you were rescued from. Many of you, most of you probably are Christians in here. This is what God did for you. You were dead in trespasses and sins, He made you alive. And you should never get over that. Never, ever, ever get over that. I mean, I look at my life 30 years ago, 35 years ago, and look at my life now and just think, how, my goodness, what has God Look what God has done. And I think about that, and I bring that up often. You say, well, gosh, you must really revel on what you've done in the past. No, I'm amazed that not only did God save me, that I'm standing here telling you about this. How, how crazy is that? Well, at least to me. And if you'd know me back then, you'd say it too. But God did it. I was dead, and he made me alive. I was drowning like this journalist, and he came, and he plucked me up, plucked me out of the waters. He did the same for you. I mean, that's spiritually us without Christ. We're the man, we're the journalist, we're in the water. The plot of every person who ever lived, you see two doctrines in there. You see original sin, that we were sinners from the beginning, we inherited from our father Adam, and total depravity. Total meaning comprehensive. We are Every faculty of our being is depraved and, and, and captive, enslaved to sin, every, every faculty, until God sets us free. And if you're in Christ, that's what's happened. God has set you free because that's what must happen. I mean, like the journalist in the water, we must be saved. Our rescue must come entirely from outside of ourselves, like Jesus did here to this to this paralytic. Or to this, this invalid, rather. I mean, but Christ has guarded my helpless estate, and it is well with my soul. Mm. I mean, John in Revelation 3.17, writing to the church at Laodicea puts it powerfully. He tells them they've got a, a very high opinion of themselves, and so do we. And i got to tell you, in Reformed circles, it's the worst I've ever seen. I've been in non-Reformed churches, I've been Reformed and man, we really, because we got good theology, right? So we've got a high opinion of ourselves. You see, God, God's Word brings us down a few notches. I mean, get, get a load of this. Revelation 3.17, he said, for, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, and here we go, this is echoing Jesus' words here, you are, or or John's words here, you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. It's very similar to what he said back in his gospel, right? You are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, naked. What's the cure? Well, verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich in white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. The salve of God's grace, the, the garments of his spotless righteousness must anoint you for you to be made right. And he does that. He's done that for us. That's what Calvary, that's what the gospel is all about, right? And we must not, we must not, we must not forget that. Or we're going to wind up in the second part of the sermon. I mean, Jesus does it. Verses 6 to 9. The invalid tells us about his plight and there's no hesitation. He, we don't even know if he believed it. It doesn't say he believed he, It's almost like he's talking, hey, I'm blind, and boom, get up and walk. He didn't say, do you believe? Do you believe you're chosen? He didn't ask you anything, did he? He just said, get up and walk. And what does he do? He gets up and walks. Can you imagine that? He's kind of talking and then Jesus does it. And that's what we need, right? That's a picture that's a of regeneration. The new birth of, of, of what he talked about back in chapter 3 to Nicodemus. And that's what's happened to you, beloved. And I think he heals him almost while he's still talking. There's no dialogue. There's no magic word. Just do it. And by his word... His healing word, boom, he's healed. He gets up and walks. This doesn't focus on his faith. I think it focuses on Jesus' ability to rescue. If you're outside of Christ today, he is your rescue. He's your only hope. You're the journalist. You're in the water. Your only rescue is Christ. And what is this but a powerful picture of the salvation that comes by grace alone, that we have a Jesus Christ alone. But... Not everybody liked it. Not everybody liked it. Jesus comes, he heals, and you think, man, isn't this great? Mm-mm. Not everybody liked it. We see in verses 10 to 17 the joyless, joyless response of the legalists. We get a sense of drama here. Second part of verse 9. Now that day was the Sabbath. You feel the music kind of pick up here. There's kind of a sense of drama because there's just that kind of bare statement. Now that day was the Sabbath. When the biblical authors do that, they just do, you leave kind of a bare statement of a fact. You know something's about to happen. It's like Jaws. You know the movie Jaws. The swimmer's in the water, and it's dark, and she's out there, and she's well, they start playing the dun dun dun, and you know it, but she don't know it, and because he, you hear the music, right? It, that's what's happening here. Now, that day was the Sabbath. Oh, boy. Something's about to happen. The pulse picks up. It's talking like in Genesis 2. They were naked and not ashamed. And you know, why do you say that? Oh, boy. Genesis chapter 3. They're aware that they're naked because something, something big is about to happen. The fall. The, the biblical writers never waste space. Never. The Pharisees stopped the man who'd been healed. They upbraided him for having the audacity of taking up his bed on the Sabbath. He healed you but you took up the bed on the Sabbath. They're focused on the healing but on his taking up of the bed because that's a no-no, a sin on the Sabbath. And he asked the former paralytic, "What is this guy that healed you? Who did this for you? There's no joy in this. They're like, wait a minute. There's some jealousy I have no doubt. I mean they're this man was breaking the Sabbath, and that is a serious offense. Read the Old Testament. Boy, I mean, it's very serious in Israel, but is this breaking the Sabbath? I don't think so. He was taking up his bed, and the one who healed him was breaking the Sabbath by healing, having the temerity to heal him on the Sabbath. They're saying, listen, buddy, don't you give us any of this stuff about your medical record. We don't want to hear that. You're carrying your bed on the Sabbath, you're breaking the law of God, you're in big trouble. It's kind of the Barney Fife of theology right here at the rock we have two rules and so one is obey our rules and what are the rules well they're the rules as we conceive them as we interpret them this is why the Sermon on the Mount happened that's why Jesus took the law of God the moral law of God remember I preached that sermon or that series a few years ago on the Ten Commandments and here's how we interpret the law of God the way Jesus did the Sermon on the Mount it's all been abrogated it's been fulfilled and yeah that's what's going on here they misunderstand the law and that makes you a very miserable person I spent a lot of years misunderstanding the law of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And some of you have too, no doubt. And maybe you do today. That's, that's why, we're, that's why we, we need scripture. And so the man had been healed, told him about the man who had healed him. Commanded his bed. He said, He commanded me to take up my bed and walk. He didn't know where the man had gone. Jesus had withdrawn from the crowd, and the Pharisees did what Pharisees do they double down. Who is this man? to take up your bed and walk they're not they're concerned about he once was he once was a paralytic or he was once lame and now he can walk they don't care about that what god has done that's a legalist this is this is the jews this is the pharisees the jews and their their laws i mean these religious people probably the pharisees doesn't call them that here but Probably we're going, to, we're going to meet them a lot in the next few weeks. and We need to meet them. We have a lot of Pharisee in us. That's why they get so much ink in the Gospels. I'm convinced they're attempting to protect the Sabbath within Israel. And that's a good thing done the right way. And they thought they were being obedient to the law of God, the word of God. But they weren't. Good desire, wrong, wrong methodology. I mean, eventually, these religious people strayed into deadly, joyless legalism. Jesus is going to spend a long time encountering this. They were just trying to protect the Sabbath, right? Or so they thought. But they added their own prohibitions to those which God had given in Scripture. And eventually, church uh, tradition tells us there were 39 series of laws with about 700 extra-biblical prohibitions, branding certain kinds of behavior as sin. The problem was... Scripture never calls these activities sin. I mean, some of these extra biblical laws put a hedge around the Sabbath. There's some examples here. Looking in the mirror was not allowed. Ladies, you'd have to come to church just guessing how your hair was done because looking in the mirror to the Jews of this ilk was a no-no. Because you might see gray hair. and If you are me, you'd see a lot of gray hairs. And be tempted to pull it out. And pulling it out is working on the Sabbath. You can't do that. Aren't you glad? So we get to come here looking nice, right? <laughs> That's sort of the point of the text, though, isn't it? You look nice on the outside. Looking in the mirror, you can't do that. You couldn't wear your false teeth on the Sabbath. Because if they fell down, you'd have to pick them up. And that would be work can't pick them up, or you'd be tempted to pick them up. Maybe you wouldn't pick them up. You'd just walk around looking like, you know, you look with the false, your false teeth in. You, know. you could not carry a handkerchief on the Sabbath, but you could wear one. Why? Well, that meant if you you're upstairs, you wanted to take a handkerchief downstairs, you'd have to tie it around your neck and walk downstairs and then untie it. That's not a work. That's clothing. You see? The Jews even debated a man about about a man with a wooden leg. And they ask this question, if his house caught on fire on the Sabbath, could he carry his wooden leg out, his house, or would that be work? They say, this is absurd. That's the point. And the thing is, we've never left behind this absurdity, have we? I mean, I was recently upbraided for having a conversation about alcohol. A conversation. Conversation about alcohol. We're hung up on that, aren't we? Things like that. And there's good, there are times to have conversations about it, believe me. It's still with us, and it's still in us, if we're totally honest with ourselves. The Pharisees said you could not take more than 1,999 steps on the Sabbath, because 2,000 steps constitute a journey, and you may not take a journey on the Sabbath. You cannot travel on the Sabbath. What you could do is tie two ropes in front of yourself for 2,000 more steps, because that would then become part of your house or ways around it. They found loopholes, right? The human heart always does. Couldn't spit on the Sabbath? Jake, you'd be in big trouble. Couldn't spit on the Sabbath. Because you'd be tempted to rub it out with your foot in the dirt and you scuffed it, you'd be cultivating soil, farming on the Sabbath. You don't farm on the Sabbath. There's so no spitting on the Sabbath. So stop that. The Pharisees are what I like to call list makers, right? You know a list maker. Maybe you've been, maybe you are a list maker, right? We're going to hope to get you over that, okay? And just one sermon here, but the list makers, and they were world champions, the Pharisees were the world champion list makers. If there were a fantasy league for list makers, they would win it every single year, right? They were. I mean, you just saw some of the more ridiculous, and I could go on and on, there are hundreds more of those. They were world champions of making to-do lists, not aimed at their own behavior, but aimed at you. Why? Because the sin is not in here, the sin is there, out there, Right? I mean, Pharisees, like all legalists, were extremely hard-hearted people. Legalism doesn't make you sweet. Spurgeon talked a lot about this. It makes you mean. <laughs> and if you doubt it, just go to a church that's steeped in legalism, and you will not last very long before somebody's mean to you. Hard-hearted people. Of course, they're unregenerate people. I mean, this is what the spirit of legalism does to a person. It makes them miserable, joyless And they're not happy until everyone around them is joyless because misery loves company. They want you to be miserable because they're miserable, right? That's not Christianity, is it? I mean, the real target here for these Jews was Jesus, right? The Jews stopped persecuting the former paralytic and turned their attention to the real target, which was Jesus, because he had the temerity to restore the man's broken body on the Sabbath. He had the temerity to give him grace. Not making fulfill the law, broke the Sabbath. I mean, you'll find the most vicious people you'll ever meet. I've met some of the people. I've been this person because we're all we all have a legalist in us, right? Or this wouldn't be so uh, such a, a topic that's writ large throughout the Gospels if it weren't in us. The Most vicious people you ever meet, the list makers always looking for sin not in their own hearts and minds but always in you out there and they have such joy in finding fault in others they're really happy doing that aren't they even if that person's been healed and healing doesn't measure up to their extra biblical standards they're still very much going to press home the law as you see here why do we do this why do we all why are we all tempted to do this well for one checking a box is much easier than relying on God's grace isn't it Checking the box, I did my thing. We can see that. And, and it's because we tend to be grace despisers and, and works lovers. We're grace despisers and we're works lovers because we can see the works. I can tell you what I did today. I can recount it. I can make a list, right, and tell you all the righteous things I did my quiet time today. Read four whole chapters of the Bible today. Usually do three today. God's got to be really happy about that, right? We can tell you, I love the, my favorite Facebook post is the quiet time post. Like that, you know, here I am, it's the coffee and the Bible and the pen, you know, and you are telling people whatever it is like, so you took time out of your meditation and meeting with the living God of the universe to take a picture of yourself and put it on Facebook. So, um, you know, we've all done that kind of thing, haven't we? We tend to be grace despisers, the works lovers. We do that because we're works lovers. Donald Gray Barnhouse said, why all this viciousness? Why this desire to destroy the meek and lowly Jesus for what he's done, for the grace he's given? Why this murderous attempt to do away with God? Because they wanted rules. They did not want God's grace. They wanted human merit. They did not want the simplicity of divine pardon. They wanted to do something for themselves. It's all about ego, right? It comes back to we did it our way. Old Frankie, right? We did it. So we are. I mean, as believers, we know we're saved by grace, but because of the human tendency of wanting to do everything for ourselves, we create a kind of a list-giving, list or list-making, list-keeping brand of Christianity that's far removed from the grace by which we were saved. And then we hold others to our standard. Instead of gods, you say, "Well, I'm glad I don't do that." Oh, but we do. Oh, we do, in our circles, don't we? If we've ever thought someone's choice of school for their children was wrong and inferior to ours, and I've thought that. Well, right here we're buying into the fear of the Pharisees and being a list maker. I've done that, right? Well, why are they doing that? Well, or if we. You know, wonder why someone else either adopted a lot of children or did adopt children or things like that, and we judge people that way. We're list makers, aren't we? I right, there's just no end to this. There's all kind. And again, in reform circles, we we do this. We we I've been I've done this, and I've been affected by this. Right? We look at some extra biblical thing and judge people based on that thing. Or some, you know, we have we have private convictions that we put on other people. And you've been, I'm sure, subject to that. We may, may have done that. Again, one of these is about alcohol. We hear, you know, we, we we most of us agree that it's not a sin to drink alcohol. Drunkenness is a sin, but boy, it's controversial, isn't it? And the Bible is very clear. Jesus said the first thing he's going to do, he comes into New Jerusalem, is what? Going to drink wine. I, and I'm a teetotaler. I'd say that as a complete teetotaler, okay? I have had... Drink of anything in 35 years. I don't intend to. But we fight over those things and we hold people and look down on other people, don't we? Because they don't hold our conviction on that. And it's fine to have that conviction. You know, I'm gonna, for myself, for me, and I'll tell you, I've told you already, for me, I don't, it's just, I'm not going to do that. I don't want to do that. But I hope I don't look down on you. And those are just, I mean, we could just multiply examples, couldn't we? I mean, there's a tendency of the human heart to grab onto some outward, useless, hypocritical ceremony that we can see and follow it to the letter without turning to God at all. At all. And in contrast to the formalism of the Jews here, Jesus showed the people that people are far more important than rules, showing mercy is a far higher obligation on followers of Christ than merely keeping some regulation. I mean, this is by no means the only time Jesus showed compassion on the Sabbath. In Matthew 12, he healed a man with a withered hand, right? And he told him, he said, man, uh, Sabbath is made for man, not man for the Sabbath, right? And he's Lord of all. I mean, Jesus, Jesus is Lord of all. That's part of it. This is a denial of his lordship. He is Lord, and legalism is a, desire, a denial of his lordship. I mean, the Pharisees rejected his lordship, but he is Lord over all of life. That's true Christianity, keeping rules, holding others to them, that is not Christianity. That is dead religion. And as Spurgeon, you've heard me, I love this quote, he, he said, that is is the—that is going to hell on a feather bed from inside the church. I mean, a lot of nice people in hell. A lot of nice people. They were so nice. I see this on bumper stickers, I saw one yesterday. Just be nice. And I'm for nice. As you know, opposed to being pugnacious and all that stuff, you know, just a you know, fight for a place to happen, some of us are that way um, I'm against that, but, but, but nice as if that's going to redeem us we just need to be nice and then we see someone nice and say that has got to be a Christian because they're nice some of the nastiest people I've ever met in my life claim to be Christians in fact the nastiest people I've ever met claim to be Christians they were in church, nasty praise God that's none of you, I'm so thankful for you Every time we come to church together, we smile, we laugh a lot. There's always a lot of laughter out here. I like that. It's a good sign. Sign of a joyful heart, isn't it? I'm thankful for that. You should be too. Shouldn't take that for granted. So we move on to the text here. Jesus said, see, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. So it seems kind of odd. I mean, it's possible this man's physical suffering may have been brought on himself because of some sin he's committed. I'm not sure. Some personal sin. We don't really know. But we must know that all suffering is certainly not due to a personal sin. I think sometimes we tend to think that. I know I can think that. I'm sometimes my wife, you know, to correct me, say, no, don't they all say, God must be doing this because I did something here. It's like, no, no, don't you, what you preach. I have to be reminded of that probably every week in ministry. It's like, this must not be going, going this must be because I've done X. No, 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 no. It's possible. Right? But, not, but not, not always. So we don't really know about this, but, What, why Jesus said this. But sin has consequences. I mean, look at King David. His son died after the affair with Bathsheba, right? Murdered Uriah. And the sword never departed from his house because of his sin. So sin does have consequences. Sometimes you'll pay for many, many serious consequences, even those who are people after God's own heart. So it's possible. I mean, verse 16, The book, the book... The book ends, this kind of book ends, verse 16, the ominous note found in verse 9. Verse 16, and this was why the Jews are persecuting Jesus, because he's doing these things on the Sabbath. That's kind of a bookend here in our text. I mean, they did what organized religion often does. People ask me, oh, you're very religious. I'm actually not very religious at all. In relationship with the living God, that's different than religion. There are all kinds of religions out there, right? And my religion is probably Georgia football, if I'm just completely honest about it. <laughs> just religion? That won't save me. That'll condemn me, in other words, right? Come on, laugh at that to be honest with me. You you'll say, boy, that's a that's that's a real admission to come on. You got your you got your thing, you got your religion too. Don't give me that. <laughs> oh. But Christ is my Lord and my life. It's more than just religion, isn't it? Yeah, we've got our ceremonies, we've got what we do on Sunday morning, but no, this is to worship the living God who's Lord over all. But they do, did what organized religion does, what legalistic Christians do to other Christians who don't measure up to their standard. They persecuted him. I know some of you. I've heard some stories. You've been persecuted in church. I have too. No, and I mean before I became a minister, right? Again, so praise the Lord. That describes none of you. So this is not a, well, I wonder who he's talking to. I'm not talking, <laughs> but it's true. And I may have persecuted somebody in this way, knowing myself, knowing, at least in my mind, I've looked down on people and said, Well, I wonder why they do that or some extra biblical thing. Usually I found if you ask them and talk to them, you'll find out why they did it. There's a good reason for it, you know. I've also learned that some of that's none of our business, you know. There's, uh, in Thessalonians, Paul talks about they lived a quiet life, they minded their own business. There's a lot of truth in that we can learn, can't we? They persecuted Jesus. They hated grace, despised it. This is going to be a theme from now on in John all the way to the cross. And this is what external works-based legalistic religion does to true Christianity. And finally, we come to Jesus' reaction to this. He says, what? Both thought, my, my father and I are working. In other words, God's providence does not take Sunday off. God's providence, God the Father, he doesn't work for Chick-fil-A. And I love Chick-fil-A. A. Profited from that, my children working there, and I'm glad they take Sunday. Oh, that's wonderful. God doesn't. And I think that's his point. I and my father, we've been working from the beginning and working right now, today. We create the world, and on Sundays, he sustains the world. I think that's his point. I think it's that really that simple. I mean, the one day and uh, seven pattern of rest and worship is, in the New Testament church has always been our practice, but God constantly works to sustain the world through his providence. Because he's Lord of the Sabbath. he's Lord of the other six days as well. And Jesus here is making a claim to deity and the Jews get that. Boy, do they ever. We're going to spend a lot of time in the coming weeks on that. We're not going to spend any time on it today because we're at the end. Why did they want to murder Jesus over this question of the Sabbath? Because they wanted rules. And if we're honest, we like rules, right? Because we can see the rules, right? I've got to admit, I like scrupulous rule keeping, right? I do. They don't want God's grace. They want human merit. They did not want the simplicity of divine pardon. They wanted to do something for themselves. They, they had all this worked out. And some of us, we got it all worked out, don't we? How we're being sanctified, How what, what we're doing for God. They want to make a show of keeping one day as sacred while their hearts wallowed in lust and their minds conceived schemes of greed we're going to see this we're going to watch them sin and they don't get it there's no self-awareness here at all in these people but their mask of external righteousness like so many of the masks we wear was keeping the sabbath i keep the sabbath therefore i'm righteous is that true of us well if it is here's what we need when you go back to the first nine verses back to the gospel that has saved us and back to where our true identity is found in in Jesus Christ. It's found in Him, right? It's found in what He did at Calvary. That's who you are. You're saved by grace through faith and if you work, it's because you're saved, right? And He's working out salvation, but it's because of what He did at Calvary and that's who you are. And no amount of Sabbath keeping will save you or condemn you. We must guard against being grace despisers. And confront legalism graciously, lovingly. Every time we see it. In our own hearts. Especially in our own hearts. But also in the church. Let's be lovers of grace. And that will shape the way we worship God. The way we love God. And the way we love each other. Let's do it for His glory. Let's pray. Father. Rescue us from deadly legalism, the ditch of legalism. Father, we are inveterate list makers. Rescue us, give us grace to appreciate what you've done in Christ and know that there's not one thing we could have done to save ourselves and not one thing we can do now to add to our salvation. Give us grace to show others grace, to love you and love our neighbor and live lives that are completely driven by the winds of grace in your glory in Jesus' name.